Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I am thrilled to welcome back Impex Beverages as the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor. Each month, we'll be talking about a new set of single casks, maybe feature a chosen distillery or single casks from a chosen distillery. Listen for the mid-roll for more info on this month's offerings. And now, a brand new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast today. I'm thrilled to be joined by James Doherty of, and you will not get this unless you look up the pronunciation, Sleeve League Distillers in Donegal, Ireland. So James, welcome. Thank you, David. Well done, man. You got the, the pronunciation is a little a little difficult with that Sleeve League, but you, you nailed it. it look, it's, it's, it's Gaelic. I will never never look at it and be like oh yeah that's absolutely what it is so i had to look it up a few times and just to make sure i get it exactly right is is it similarly sleeve league or is there a little extra flavor there that i heard sleeve league yeah like, well, it's, so so um the irish alphabet i think is only 18 characters long so we don't have a j um we certainly don't have w x y z i think we don't have a q so all of those kind of odd sounds are made uh, ostensibly with a with a magical H, so you put a H next to a V and it becomes a V sound. Uh, so B, so B B H is a V. Contextually, it changes, so it's just deliberately confusing. Uh, M H is a W, uh, but not always. <laughs> so, um, so it kind of is one of those funny ones. But you so and so sleeve is a mountain. That's what it, it literally is. Mountain is what it means, and it's the sleeve as in the sleeve of your shirt. And lieg lieg is um, is so there's a little inflection in there is flagstones, so it's the mountain of flagstones. And in old Irish, would probably be Schlieu Alig. There would have been an ah in the middle, so the for the of. Right, right. I yeah, I heard you uh, in response say it, and I heard the sh at the beginning as opposed to the hard as of sl. So yes, had had to ask. Um, <laughs> no, it's all yeah, good. Well, we're going to talk uh, a little bit about the you know the culture of where you are too, uh, and that'll bring up a little more about the Gaelic but um, you know as we know this podcast is about not asking the usual questions with the exception of the origin story questions so I'd love to, for you to just give us an intro to how Schlieve Leag came, yeah. came about. Surely well, it's it's a long story in many ways as, as most sort of Irishmen um, who have left the place. So my mum and dad left here in the 1960s and, and I grew up in England. So that's why I have this accent and, and um, I can't apologize enough, but it, it, it's uh, it's who I am. I'm a product of a kind of English education, if you like, and, a, and, a, and an Irish cultural upbringing. Um, the, the distillery, I've been very fortunate. I worked, uh, I started off as a tea and coffee farmer in Central Africa. So I used to grow tea and coffee for a living then left that, came back to the UK and, and almost fell into William Grant and Sons. Uh, so the owners of Glenfiddich, Balvenie, Hendrix Gin, Sailor Jerry, um, Grant's Whiskey and many other things. Great, great kind of business in terms of family owned there for the long term. And, and they gave me a fantastic break and I went through a number of sales roles, innovation roles, marketing roles, ended up on the board for a few years at just about the time that Grant's bought Tullamore Dew um left after a few years after that and joined Peroni and um well I joined Foster's Beer in Australia and was going to move the whole family to Melbourne and just as we joined Foster's Sab Miller bought them so Miller so you know Miller Beer um bought Foster's 
and the guys there at uh, Sab Miller said, "Well, look, we don't we don't need you to run the international operation from from Melbourne. We've already got that covered, but we'd like you to go to Hong Kong and open up Asia for Peroni, which not the toughest gig in the world, if I'm honest. You know, <laughs> selling stylish Italian beer to uh, to Asia. But anyway, I did that for a couple of years. But we'd already really more and I'd had this desire to come back to Ireland. It was effectively our kind of place where we kind of felt, felt most connected. Moira's from Zimbabwe, so she's from Bulawayo and Zim, and, um, and we kind of had to pick somewhere to put our roots down. And, and we, you know, Ireland was kind of where we felt most connected. And we also had this kind of origin story that's linked to this illicit distilling heritage of Donegal. So Donegal has probably the richest illicit heritage in Ireland. If you go back to about 1815, there are maps that show the number of still seizures in this place in the far northwest of Ireland, um, it's like five times the next nearest county. So, you know, either we were rubbish at hiding or everyone was doing it, um, or both maybe. Um, and both my grandparents were illicit distillers, my grandfather's. So Moira had this notion one day we were picking seaweed here many years before, had anyone at the time use seaweed in alcohol and at the time no one had and we came back with this idea of andulum and gin which is a, a seaweed based gin we have five seaweeds in a gin super savory tells us it's really Moira's um, love letter from the Donegal coast it's uh, um, we, we talk about capturing Driochna Farraga which is the magic of the sea in Irish so so she had this notion and I had this notion around granddad's potching recipe which my grand bizarrely gave to me six weeks before she died so I was an agriculture student excuse me and hitchhiked over to spend some time with her because she wasn't well and she literally sat down and at no point in my kind of and, and I was very close to my grand had she ever really talked about granddad and his potching making and stuff but she just did she just sat there one evening with me telling me the stories of it and she wrote out the recipe for me and and then gave it to me and I've got 72 first cousins um most of them in the US actually so most of them based around Cleveland Ohio and um none of the others were given it so she obviously felt there was a reason for handing it on and so we came back with this idea that we could bring back these styles and this illicit style for Donegal which was smoky um which we believe to be dry smoky not the sort of Isla style so it's much more sort of ashy pipe smoke, campfirey, rather than oily TCP, that kind of taste. And we put those two ideas together and came back up sticks from Hong Kong in 2014 today, actually today is the anniversary. So we came back eight years ago. Um, and since then we've built, we built a gin distillery originally um, and got started making that. And, um, uh, and the gins, gins go very well. Um, and then through lockdown, we we crowdfunded in lockdown, uh, and we've got a lot, number of other sort of significant investors who are all drinks industry and people who I've met over my wanders around the world, um, and they've backed us to build a distillery in our draw, which we start we we crowd as I say crowdfunded in twenty twenty. We started October twenty twenty building it, and through lockdown we built the whole thing. So it switched on October twenty one. Um, and now we're sort of a year later, so we're, we've got our first whiskies that are, you know, a year plus. Um, and we've also got some small amounts of whiskey that we laid down before that, that we just made almost for fun. 
um, to test the recipes as much as anything and to see, you know, whether whether my gran had been <laughs> stringing me a line or whether she was genuine in, this, in, the, in the recipe idea. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of where we are now. We have um, a 500,000 litre uh, pure alcohol whiskey distillery, grains in, um, so it's all grains in, uh, making single malt and, and uh, Irish pot still. Um, we're dedicated to peated Irish whiskey, so we make nothing that's unpeated. Uh, so they're all true to Donegal. We make the gin up there. And actually, I have, um, I finally got to make this. So this is granddad's pochine recipe. Oh. So um, just because this is uh, audio only, uh, James is holding yes. up a bottle of completely clear liquid that, yeah. um, I mean, he, he could be bullshitting me right now. It could be anything, but I'm going to believe him that it's the <laughs> grandfather's poutine recipe. Yeah. So, well, the only thing is it's not, it can't be exactly because the way he made it, he made it in a tiny sort of five gallon still and mm. our smallest our still is 10,000 liters. So, so we've made it on a slightly more industrial scale, but it's, it, it's petered single more molasses because he cheated. Um, mm. Technically you're not supposed to do that. And then, um, uh, malted peated oats as well so it has this amazing kind of coffee like citrus um, overlay to it. it's lovely so it will we'll get that out in the new year but at the moment the real focus is on the silkies which are the whiskies that we blend uh, and, and have got to about 40 countries of the world sorry that's a very long introduction david sorry no all good all good the more detail the better we we love nerdiness and and really geeking out on this podcast and <laughs> okay um also, feel free to to curse as well. There's, I mean, we're we're a whiskey podcast. It's twenty one and only anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, before we go on to the other ones, I got to ask on the uh, on the poutine recipe. I, I mean, I'm assuming you can't put out the poutine, like you said, with a molasses base in there or, or molasses addition in there. So, uh, but is there some kind of product line? Like, for example, in the U.S., we've got the um, distilled spirit specialty category, which basically yes. if you don't fit into anything else, you go in there. So is there something similar in Ireland where you could put out the quote unquote exact? Yeah. Recipe? So it could be, it could, we could certainly could market it as a spirit drink, which is, uh, I think is the catch all category. The, the other thing is that the technical file, so the geographic descriptor that kind of specifies, you know, like what bourbon is or what's, what Scotch whiskey or what Irish whiskey is, the, is the technical file actually is for Irish poaching. Um, so I, I haven't checked this with my lawyer yet, but I'm fairly confident if I don't use the word Irish, then the word pochin is being used around the world kind of in a slightly amorphous way, um, you know, because people have made pochins. It, well, pochin was made because it means little pot. If you use een as a sound on the end of anything, is the diminutive. So like Roisin as a girl's name is Little Rose. Um, uh, you know, and my mum, my mum is Rosha. So, her, you know, my my daughter is Rosie, but in Irish she'd be Roisin. And so Pochin is pot, which is the still, you know, is, and then it, in is it's a little pot because it was made up, you know, in the hills and what have you. So, um, but this French, not the French, but the Welsh make it, Scots made it. I think they've made you know, the Australian guys of Irish heritage are making it. So, so the word pochin, I think, in terms of protection, is probably lost. Um, but the words Irish pochin have a specific definition, which is um, is probably relevant, is accurate in terms of what was currently being made at the time the file was written. But if you go back historically, 
if you go back far enough, you know, if you go back pre-famine era, then all of Pochine was all grains only. There was nothing else added. If you go past the famine, it starts to add uh, molasses and other sort of adjuncts that created you know were used as sugar cheats really so um uh, but but not in ma- not in the main quantities and if you look at pochine made probably still made on the hills today most of it would be kind of almost a rum because it would be made with with refined sugar um so so the definition really needs to be put back to somewhere around 18 sort of i don't know maybe 1850 1870 and you say well actually there's a good point in time um which would allow you to sort of would allow the molasses piece to be technically correct. Um, but it's it's one of those kind of interesting dynamics in the Irish industry, which comes from the fact that it's it's at once, you know, the, probably the oldest distilling nation from a drinks perspective in the world, mm. but also the youngest because for so long it kind of became super consolidated and you end up with two distilleries making whiskey, sort of one in the north and one in the, the, the south down in so Middleton and Bushmills. Um, and then the sort of the rest of the heritage is kind of written, but it's not not being enacted. And that's really only coming to life now with, you know, the likes of ourselves taking a, almost an illicit approach to making whiskey on a sort of semi-industrial scale. And other guys kind of experimenting with mash bills and those kind of things, going back into history to find those recipes, to bring them forward. Um, which So it's kind of an interesting kind of tension that sits there in the industry here, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll give you a preview. The, the last question I'm going to ask you today to close out is about, you know, where you envision Schlieveleg's uh, place in the history of and future of Irish whiskey uh, and its current renaissance. So, yeah. you know, that'll be the last question. We'll get to that. But, you know, you've, you're teasing bits of it throughout. And I want yeah. so I want to just let you know that that is coming. OK, um, cool. So, uh, you know, there there are so many areas to go here because it's we've we've I've talked to a couple of Irish distillers before, and I, and when I say Irish, I'm including both um, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Yeah. Um, but uh, Donegal is is quite unique in pretty much everything you can think about. You know, language, culture, yeah. geography, um, history, and so you know, for for those not currently looking at a map, which if you are, you know, I wish I had a prize for you because that would just be weird. But um, <laughs> it's the you know geographically it's the northernmost county in Ire- in the on the island of Ireland. Yes, it kind of wraps around. It's on the western coast. Wraps around um, the western side of the of Northern Ireland. Um, I think it's what six miles connecting it to the rest of the Republic of Ireland, something like that. Very That's short right. border. The very when you get down to the very bottom uh, where you cross from uh from Donegal through Leitrim into Sligo it's yeah I mean it's five miles between the sea and the border yeah yeah it's very very tiny um it's got such a rich and unique history and it's one of the one of the couple of um you're gonna have to correct my pronunciation here but Gaeltiox okay close close um so Gaeltiox regions where um Gaelic is still really the predominant or an equal language and not a secondary one. Um, so uh, before we dive into even more about, you know, the silkies, which are your current yeah. whiskeys, and then the whiskeys being produced right now, um, I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into, you know, why Donegal is so exceptional and unique in the Irish whiskey world. It's, it's a fascinating part of the world. It, it's, it's geographic, as you say, in the north, far northwest of, of the island. 
um, it's politically in in the Republic of Ireland. Um, and, and if you're born here, most people would say that Donegal's forgotten by both governments, you know, so and, and that's led to a kind of a slightly slight contrariness, which I, which is a real positive, and I've certainly inherited that. Um, so, you know, we take kind of different views on the way the world operates and the way we should operate because of it. Um, it is as you, it's a massive county, so um, and not probably not by US standards, but um, you know by Irish standards to drive from where we are to the to to Malinhead in the very far north of the county, that's a that's a three hour drive. So you know it's a it's a fair trek to get anywhere. Um, and and Derry, which is the which is in the north, would have originally been the sort of county town, if you like, of Donegal. We wouldn't have had the kind of administrative centres we've built up since. Um, partition because Derry would have been the hub for everything. It's a kind of strange, um, and, and I think the West Coast all has this, but certainly Donegal has it. There's a strange sort of melancholy. It's a place where people have left and and still leave and leave in large numbers, and and yet there's a there's also a sort of mischievousness a mischievousness about the place where there's there's always something going on it has, the the pure Donegal accent which unfortunately I can't do for you gives you just talking to a guy from Donegal you you know they're up to something you know there's just <laughs> that mischievousness about it which is lovely and we try and bring that into that kind of mischievousness into what we do but um it is a county that's largely undeveloped from a tourism perspective um, it has some most amazing scenery. So it's kind of wild and raw. Um, it's beautiful rather than pretty. So, you know, there's sort of chocolate box pictures of Ireland that most people would have from movies and what have you. And that's probably more towards the sort of southeast or sort of Dingle, Kerry, that kind of way. Um, whereas Donegal, you know, is well battered by the North, well, by the wild Atlantic. And, and that kind of rawness... Um, for us is inspiring and that kind of you know and it means that you've got these people people that are resilient and resourceful um and, and kind of optimistic but in in a kind of very um in a way that has a kind of certain sort of fatality about it almost if it's kind of if you can imagine that but but it is a country where people leave so you if you look at um you know my parents left here in the 60s and, you know, when we came back, it was really about trying to create opportunity to stop that happening. And, and, and spirits businesses and distilleries in particular are wonderful things because they have a sense of place. That means you don't, it's not like we're making, you know, widgets for computer factory. You can't pick our business up and drop it in, you know, in Croatia or in the Czech Republic or because there's a good tax break. You know, a distillery called Schlieve League has to be near Schlieve League and it has to be in Donegal. And it's as simple as that. And so they, you know, the the lessons that I'd learned from that time at sort of Glenfiddich and looking at how the contribution those businesses make to the area. Um, you know, if you build them right and you build them well for the long term, then then these businesses can contribute opportunity for for a you know for for a hundred two hundred years if you get it right, um, and, you know I, I want to drop in here just yeah. uh because you you said the exact phrase and I thought that was kind of poetic and which was that distillers have a sense of place. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know I just finished last month as of recording last month I uh, was at an event with Dave Broom. Scotch whiskey writer and his latest yeah. book is literally called a sense of place uh and it is 
about Scottish distilleries in particular, but I think the the point that he makes throughout the book was, I mean, you just articulated it, basically that certain things have to be where they are. Okay. Yep, that's it. <laughs> so, yep, no, he's got it, the book on his shelf. Yeah, it's um, I think so, and um, I, I've I've always felt that, and I think um. And what's interesting, I think, for particularly you, you talked about the Irish whiskey renaissance. For me, is what's interesting at the moment is that the identity of some of the distilleries is not yet fully formed, and, and probably ours isn't either. You know, we're very, I think we're very clear about what we think we are, but what the world will tell us is acceptable will be the bit that, you know, will probably be what it is in the in the future. But it, but there is, um, there's a, for us, it's, it's, about, it's about Donegal, you know, Donegal in Irish means, um, or Dúnagal is uh, the fort of the stranger. And that's because it's been settled, not just by Celts, but by Vikings, by Pictish, by by the Spanish, you know, from the Spanish Armada. So there's this kind of melting, melting pot of kind of cultures and things that have fitted into what is the Donegal Celtic, you know, which is a, a sort of a culture that's, as I said, resilient, resourceful, rich in law and heritage and sort of folk tales um, and, and has a language that's incredibly rich uh, and, and, and very visual. And so all of those things kind of feed into a uh, sense of place. And, and it's kind of interesting because I think you struggle with, if you say terroir, it's a very functional thing for me. Terroir is all about, you know, the, it's, it's you know, as a farmer, particularly, as you know, that's what I started as. It, it, you know, it's about soils. It's about the chemical analysis. It's about the sun. It's about, you know, you can, all of the things that go contribute into that area are very specific. Whereas that sense of place is a kind of almost a cultural terroir, if that makes sense, you know, sort of a sense of the people and the, and it's the influence the people have on a space that gives it its identity. And we talk about being Shanaki. The Shanaki is a, an Irish word for a storyteller, but it was the storyteller who in Game of Thrones was the guy that was always informing on what should happen. And, you know, they're the keepers of the history and, and they weave into that kind of fact, you know, they weave into that myth and, and kind of legends and a bit of mischief and whatever. And that keeps the sort of oral history of a place alive. And and I think Donegal is a place that has that in spades. And and I think so. We we're kind of clear that the terroir is not terroir specifically. It's much more a sense of place that comes from the culture of the people, the language, the you know the the climate, and those other sort of functional pieces. But it's the influence of the people on it that matters in this case, or well, for me anyway. Yeah, and just to. Uh, to dovetail that with uh, with portions of Dave's book, and and I should say Dave uh, should be coming on the podcast in a couple of episodes, which will be quite exciting to talk about the book oh. and and his history. Yeah. Um, yes, in in researching about uh, Schlivli and also reading um, Dave's book, your both both the area and the distillery itself kind of reminded me most of of two in Scotland just to make the comparison one being um you know orkney and the have and the um orcadians up there mm -hmm. being part of scotland but effectively you know they're they're viking they're <laughs> they're not scottish they're not pictish they're they're nothing like that it's a completely yeah. different culture um even though it's 
politically part of it and geographically fairly fairly nearby um so in that one and then the second one i think was the representation of Kleinleisch and brora on the okay. east coast yeah and i say that because they're there he used those as representations of uh you know the um oh, I'm blanking on the word now the uh i'm blanking on the formal word but the the formal the the forcible removals of oh, people yeah. from the from the inland the, to to yeah to the uh to the coasts and in that you know the people took their traditions yeah. and their language and such and of course things had to change there were fishers instead of farmers and um that was sometimes successful sometimes not but always forced and it it struck me that that both of those kinds of scenarios both the orkney and the Bora kleinleash area could apply to, to donegal as well as just this very politically separate kind of area you know forgotten by both governments as you say mm. it's got its own culture history a language that is elsewhere but also as you said you can pick it out yes. <laughs> if you know what you're looking for so um it, it, yeah it, it just fascinated me it made me want to learn more about the the county itself the history in the area um yeah it's, so th- i just I want to put those thought that. no that's interesting i hadn't thought about broad klein leash that kind of parallel i'll have to give that a bit of thought but it is i suppose for, because um because if you like brand island is so strong if you think about how do how do you fit into that for us it was this kind of take a very distinctive position be very very distinctively Donegal and then and then Ireland so so you know for us Ireland is a table stake but Donegal is is, is the real bet you know and um uh and I and that's why I, I kind of think that there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's an interesting development going to happen now in in Irish whiskey, which is where the distilleries evolved their styles. What are, what is their style? You know, because because you do see um, a lot of experimentation going on, a lot of really interesting liquids, innovative things going on, um, sort of tasting, going back into history and bringing things forward, but at some point you have to commit to your identity within that and um and for us that's really simple it's this idea of grains in peated single malt and pot still that's it and um and and that will i i think it will be challenging and i think there'll be lots of you know people that will not like what we make and that's fine you know that's you know we're, we're not for everyone and and nor is done all you know and it's um you know, I, I know when I talk to the tourism bodies that you talk to Fulcher Island will turn around and say to you, you know, but Donegal's only the same distance as, as as Dingle is in Kerry. And I'm like, yeah, but if you say that to someone in Dublin, no one cares. <laughs> they're still going to go. They're still going to go to Dingle. <laughs> you know, so, you know, we may as well tell people that we're different. It's further. It's a pilgrimage, but it's worth doing. And 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 the adventurous and the curious will come here to see it. And and that's enough. It doesn't need, you know, we don't have to appeal to everybody. And I should, I just want to note a quick thing here too, which is that uh, something that stuck out was how not only, you know, you're geographically very far away, but also uh, a footnote in some of the histories was the decimation of the rail connections. Yes. Up to yeah. Donegal. And yeah. 
as you said, you know, if you're starting in Dublin um, and you want to get to either Donegal or to Kerry or, you know, to, to these mm-hmm. different or to Dingle, you know, some places are easier to get to than others. And yeah. you're just necessarily more difficult. It's uh, to go again back to Dave's book. You know, it's, it's when he's talking about a distillery that as the crow flies is maybe five miles away from each other, two distilleries. Yeah but it's an hour and a half to two hour drive because of the roads to get there and yeah, all yeah. that. So to say that something is the same distance, as you point out, is, is farcical. It doesn't mean yeah. anything. No, it, so. exactly. No, no, you're, you're, you're spot on. I think it, it's, um, it, it also doesn't really take into account what people think before they set off on these journeys. But it, but, you know, if you look at a map of Ireland, sort of 1940 something, and look at the rail linkages between Dublin and the West or the North. Um, and you look at them now, they're decimated. Now they were all the ones up our way were all narrow gauge um, and, and that kind of thing. So they weren't, you know, they weren't functionally railways like, like you would, ex- you'd see sort of, you know, closer into to the cities. They were effectively bus routes on rails, but um but they were functioning and they were there. And, you know, if you go to Killybegs, the nearest sort of fishing harbour to us, their restaurant in the hotel is called the turntable because it actually is where the trains used to stop and then you turned them around and then you drove them back the other way. Um, and even the field that we have built the distillery in, which used to be called the show field, they used to have the agricultural shows for the village in, the, in that area. It used to have, and sadly it's fallen down now and it had rebuilt, replaced by a big agricultural shed, but it had a little red shed, which I tried to buy because I just wanted to preserve it because it was beautiful in a very arcane kind of way. But it had a fuel tank underneath it because it was where the local hotel kept their Rolls Royce. And so when the well healed from Dublin came to the railhead, which was in Glenties, they would send the car up to pick them up and bring them down to stay at the Nesbitt Arms Hotel, which you can see the distillery from there. Um, but unfortunately, that that's all gone because there isn't there isn't an infrastructure now. So you know the nearest station to us is Sligo or Derry. You know both of those are two hours drive away. Oof. So yeah, so you, if you want to get there, then you want to you have to want to get there, which is. I, you want to drive, yeah, because you, you, you know there's three distilleries in Donegal now. When you know when we started back in in 2015, there was nothing, and the last distillery was 1841. Um, but now you've got you know us, um, and then in the north of the county, you, there's a distillery called Boilioc, with much smaller, um, a proper cottage kind of, I suppose, it's kilo in sized. Um, and Mike was. Um, you know, superb distiller up there doing some really adventurous things. And then between the two of us, there's the the Crolly distillery where they've taken the old doll factory. It used to make Crolly dolls that were famous around the world. And they've turned that into a, a distillery using some old cognac stills. Um, so, you, you know, again, sort of qu- both both of them are as quirky as we are, in, but in very different ways. So, you know, Donegal is becoming, you know, a, a sort of a little hotbed of distilling, which is fantastic. Because you know that that brings opportunity to the whole county, um, and probably makes sort of distillery tourism more viable for all of us. And we're quite lucky. Um, so an hour and a half south of us is the town of Sligo, and that's where Sazerac have just bought. Um, they bought Lock Gill Distillery, um, and that's going to be the home of Paddy Irish Whiskey. So there'll be some, you know, and I've seen the plans that they have for there. And if they do, you know what they've done to Buffalo Trace. So <laughs> I'm sure. 
if they even yeah. do half of that down with us, then you know that probably moves the the sort of some of the center of gravity for distilling up towards the northwest, which has got to be a good thing. Yeah, and if nothing else, it gives a, a how do I put this a a larger a larger footprint up north for sure, and then kind of a bigger staging ground yeah. for for tourism to get up there. Like people can stay overnight a little bit closer and therefore can uh you know make a day trip up or decide to do a full you know couple of days but either way it's it's closer as you say a center of gravity is closer so yeah. there's less distance to travel to get the full donegal experience we're just an hour further on kind of thing and and you know the the the, the gi for irish whiskey is is, is an all-island one you know I, I don't know if it's completely unique but it's certainly unusual that it's an it's a geographical indicator that sits in two jurisdictions in you know in the UK through Northern Ireland and in, and in the Republic as well and so there's a whole lot of cross-border linkages that are there which are you know relate to um you know tourism relate to supply chains relate you know relate to energy supply you know so it's so it's a it's a kind of fairly I think it's a really important beast in the long-term development you know long-term opportunity for Ireland which is based off that whole island economy idea. Right. And right now, again, as of as of recording, there's no hard border. It's you can literally walk from side to side. But yeah. um, unfortunately, we won't know what ha- what'll happen in the future, given Brexit and all of that. But in the meantime, for now at least, uh, the cross border traffic and cross border communication uh, will certainly be to to your benefit and to the benefit of anyone else. Up, in, up north absolutely I, I mean and i'm an optimist on this one i think you know the 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 sort of benefits of that openness on the island is is is, is you know is significant you know i I was in dublin last week i, I drove down and actually i take a sort of windy route to go down just because i like the roads better but you know i crossed the border six times so mm-hmm. you know but the only reason you've known you crossed the border is because the speed limit signs changed. And, you know, that that's a great place. But I think it's important from a, you know, if you think about the the, the sanctions that were but the UK and the, the Europeans and uh, and the US had over, over the Airbus Boeing dispute, you know, that got caught, Irish whiskey got caught in that, but only the whiskeys from Northern Ireland got caught in that because the UK is part of Airbus and Ireland is not. And, you know, you kind of, it just you know the probably things that people don't think about and in terms of those linkages and, and sort of the impacts of them so it's you know it's important kind of create some interesting challenges around how we protect the category as it goes forward um which i think is you know those are kind of big things uh to solve um you know and we just better make sure that they're not or hope that they're not a political football um discussions are being had let's hope i mean the you know the tariffs may be gone but uh, I can't say the prices have come down. Unfortunately, I think <laughs> they found people were still buying to the tariff, the you know the price plus tariff prices, and uh, so what's the incentive to go back down? Uh, so it's, it's like fuel prices, isn't it? They they go up very quickly and they come down very slowly. Exactly, exactly. So uh, you know, with that, I think this is a great chance to you know let's dive into oh you know before we dive into sorry mm. the listeners are going to kill me. I'm like I always have another thing to another tangent to go on, but. Uh, let the I promise uh, to you and the listener. Last thing before getting into the whiskeys themselves yeah. is I did want to ask about like what was it like to crowdfund a distillery? 
<laughs> yeah. Um, no, fascinating, actually. It is, you know, a huge, huge learning experience. So, um, so we're the first, I think, to have done it in Ireland. Um, and and in, that threw up some kind of interesting legal challenges because in Ireland, the, the concept of crowdfunding when we first did it in 2020 didn't exist. Um, so, so that was interesting because we couldn't say sign up to our crowdfunding here. We could say you can find information on our crowdfunding here. <laughs> mm. And then people would go to that and that would take you to, to a UK site and then they could log on and register and what have you. Um, and, and also there was a kind of weird kind of, well, I suppose maybe just to back out a little bit is we started by building as much as we could with our own money. And we built the gin distillery and the operation there and we got started and we've kind of tried to do it that way. So we do something, I was listening to one of your other podcasts actually, where there was, um, uh, I can't remember who was it said, they have a phrase, bam, and, um, bring another million. Oh yeah. Oh, Driftless Land, yeah, that was the last yeah. one, yeah. Um, and so so our policy had kind of in terms of trying to develop was rather than go and raise, say, 10 or 15 million to build a distillery and then and then spend the next 15 years trying to earn your business back from, from a venture capital organization or something like that, was that we would try and do a retail offering and use drink drinks industry guys then um and, and so people who would understand the length of time it takes to do this and and build a phase so gin distillery ourselves and we build a phase get the silkies launch get out there into whatever we are now 40 countries and then let's go and build a distillery and so every time we had a value point where we had reached certain targets that we'd set ourselves we could then go out to the market and say look here's the business it's a bit more valuable now it's a bit less risky it's a bit more this or that or the next thing and the crowdfunding was really what we saw as two things. One was probably the, getting towards the end of, of being able to do a retail only fundraising, um, which was so, you know, sort of not looking to institutions for money. And the second piece was that we had always committed locally that we would find a way of allowing people to be part of the journey with us, invest with us and get the upside with us. And, and in Irish law, you can only have 149 shareholders before you automatically become a limited, uh, a public limited company, uh, and you have to be quoted. So for us, the crowdfunding piece was really quite interesting because we have one one shareholder, which is the nominee account for the crowdfunding organisation Crowdcube, and all of the shareholders' shares are held in beneficial trust in there. So it sits as one shareholder, even though we have 1,300 crowdfunders. Gotcha. Um, okay. And we always felt like our story was reasonably engaging. It was kind of, it's a very human story and it was kind of interesting. We thought it was quite interesting and we had enough success that we didn't look risky, um, even though we were still quite early stage. And there was, a, I suppose we were just, I was never prepared for how much work is involved in the crowdfunding piece because it's, you're communicating. If you think about shareholder communications, you're now communicating to a much bigger group and more often, mm -hmm. but also um, the actual process, you, you kind of, you do a whole load of pre-work, which no one sees, then mm -hmm. it goes live. And when it goes live, it's like, I'm trying to think, it's like the Kentucky Derby, you know, someone lifts the gates open and, and then people kind of rip in and then you've got all your information on there and there's questions coming on everything and anything, you know, so there's people asking about strategy, about your financing, who you are, why you're doing it. Um, 
and getting into very great detail about you know kind of how we're structured financially what that looks like and we had committed to ourselves that we would make sure that no answer took more than four hours so that even in the nights so we were sort of, you know we were taking turns sort of checking the the questions in the night and and we got this kind of responding in a very open and very sort of very open very transparent and very kind of in the moment we didn't spend a lot of time sitting there thinking about exactly what the message should be we just kind of answered the question and i think that the community responded superbly well to that and and then once people started going invest investing i have to tell you the clock becomes addictive because you can hear this thing this thing keeps t you know you can see who's looking you can see how many you're converting um and what have you um and it's just i suppose it's hugely humbling to think that people really kind of liked our story and wanted to be part of it um and we, we obviously enjoyed it because we we've, we've done it again this year and again hit you know beat the targets we set ourselves and um and you know and, and you're expanding that community and these guys are and girls are all kind of ambassadors so they it's not just that they're invested in the distillery they're telling people they've invested in the distillery and they're buying the brands in a bar and um yeah it's kind of incredible really um but it i would i wouldn't underestimate i mean if i was saying to another distiller i'd probably say the, the be, be prepared for the amount of work because it is significant because your investor base is now so broad and you've got massively different levels of kind of understanding and, and and interest and you've you've got to manage all of that all the time it's fascinating i i don't i'm sure there are ones in the us that i haven't heard of yet but i just i never seen that upfront you know the the idea that it was crowdfunded and it was out there and so i had to ask about that no um, there's a few in the uk that have done it very successfully so um and it was really the UK ones that gave us confidence. And then, David, you know, it was the first year of lockdown. So, you know, COVID was there, the whole world was locked down. And and my gut feel, and, and actually um, one of the other uh, investors is a non-exec, you know, we're very cautious about it because it, it's a very public fail if it goes wrong. Um, and, you know, the question in your head is who's who's investing in the middle of a pandemic um and the reality actually was we found was that people were at home and actually had quite large disposable you know the income although there were incomes were reduced people weren't out and spending so people probably felt a little bit more confident and they knew it would pass and they were looking for positive things to do and and so the distillery was kind of a positive story in that in that world at that time um I think the world is a lot more uncertain now. So, um, you know, it's a, probably a tougher environment to do it again now, I would suggest. I can't imagine you're wrong on that. <laughs> Sadly, yeah, that, I think I'm certain, yeah. yeah. So, you know, with that, let's uh, yeah. jump right in to the, to the whiskeys. So uh, right now you started to selling on your own stills a little over a year ago. So that's, you know, it's been laid down, it's just resting, waiting yeah. for good things to happen. Um, but you do have the brand out now, the Silky. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think to your to your statements earlier about, you know, the, this mysteriousness and, and mischievousness almost of Donegal, uh, the Silky is what I 
kind of interpreted as almost a mermaid-like figure right out of the, yeah. old, the classic Hans Christian Andersen, not the Disney version of Little Mermaid. Um, yeah. But yeah, this very mysterious, almost siren-y kind of figure. So, um, you know, how did the Silky come about and, and why why the Silky as as brand? Okay, well, so um, because I think when we look at the, the way I kind of think about the world is in a sort of spirits world is is that we we were very clear that anything with that we made ourselves would would physically in a, in the distillery from soup to nuts would be named after the distillery and anything that wasn't wasn't going to be named after the distillery so we were very clear that we wanted to be um that we wanted to develop a brand that would allow us to sort of take people on a journey into smoky irish whiskey which is not a kind of mainstream idea or certainly wasn't um, I think there are now 40 out there, but it wasn't a mainstream idea um, when when we started in 2015. You know, there was Connemara and pretty much nothing else. And we wanted to do it in, in the blended category rather than in single malts because we wanted it to be accessible and we wanted it to be consumed and that people would drink it, they would talk about it, and it would also prepare the way for the whiskies that will come from the Ardra distillery in time. So that's really kind of the thinking behind it. We use um, everything we do generally. Um, we talk about reclaiming the distilling heritage of Donegal. That's that's our thing. And then we, we do that to, through making things that are beautiful, like Donegal, not necessarily pretty. So, you know, we don't, um, we love soft drinking spirits. So I love hard spirits that drink soft. So we look for a soft texture in, in everything. So the blends, are, these are blended to be soft. Our, our gins are distilled to be soft and, and our whiskies are really, really soft, even the potching. So even at sort of 78%, you can carry big alcohol if the whiskies are intrinsically soft or if your spirits are intrinsically soft. So we look for that. Um, and I don't think that's common, if I'm honest. Um, we, we, we try and tell a story. So it's all about telling a story of Donegal whether, and celebrating Donegal, whether it's the, the people, the place, the culture, the folklore, in this case, the silky or selkie, which is the mermaid legend of the west coast of Ireland, generally told as a seal. Um, and, and the legend, for, for those that haven't heard it, is uh, the, uh, you know, that she comes ashore as a seal and she sheds her sealskin coat and then uh, it turns into a beautiful woman, a fish, falls in love with a fisherman. They have... The, you know they settle and they have a family but the call of the sea is too much and she has to go back and and the fishermen locally would would say that you know when you go out in your boat when the seals follow the boats because they're checking on their loved ones so that's the story but it is essentially a, a, the viking mermaid legend that was brought here you know so if you come from from as you say hans christian anderson but then if you go down the, the you have selkies or kelpies that can be called either coming down the coast of scotland they become silkies or selkies on the west coast of ireland and it got all the way to nova scotia so i remember having a conversation with the buyer in nova scotia and i was like well a silky is and he was like it's okay they got here too don't worry <laughs> we've, we've got that story um uh so that's the, where the silky comes from the liquids are all, the whiskies are all sourced so they're blended to you know by me to my recipe but they're using great northern whiskies so um great northern distillery in dundalk superb operation uh they produce probably 22 different styles that you can tap into probably six or seven different styles of spirit and then you know multiple cask vari variations on that to try and create different things um they're all peated, 
and they're all explain, exploring different ideas in smoke. So they, they're notionally um, increasingly smoky. So from the legendary silky with the green label, sorry, through to dark silky, um, which is smokier, and then the midnight silky. So they get progressively smokier uh, in terms of the recipe. So 4% peated in the legendary silky, 15% peated in the dark silky, and then 35% of the recipe is uh, peated in the midnight silky. But actually, they kind of explore different ideas in smoke. So they're more like cousins than brothers, if that makes sense. It is December, which means you're looking for the perfect whiskey to give the people you love this season, including yourself. The bourbon hunt is coming to an end, and some special releases are still to come. But I'm here to offer a different, uniquely sustainable option from our presenting sponsor, Impex Beverages. Our Demerkin Distillery is one of Scotland's newest producers, located in the Highlands and founded less than a decade ago in 2014. From the start, sustainability has been at the core of their operations. Local, renewable energy fuels the distillery, and the nearby river generates hydroelectric power. Biomass boilers use wood chips from local forestry, and stillage feeds livestock across the peninsula. Their first single malt whiskies came out in 2020 and were immediate successes. The distillery's two signature styles, a peated and unpeated Highland, are matured in two sets of casks. 65% of the liquid goes into ex-bourbon and 35% into ex-sherry casks, blended at the end for an impressive spirit, redolent with fruitiness, waxy character, and true West Coast Scottish charm. As an aside for you blockchain lovers out there, each bottle's journey can be tracked via a QR code on the bottle from field to glass. I've now got two Ardnamerkins on my shelf, their core single malt available at most stores nationwide, and a single cast bottling from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, another sponsor of the Whiskering Podcast. For that holiday gift, consider a single cask release from the Impex Collection. A six-year-old first fill Oloroso Spanish oak cask, this bottle comes from some of Ardnamerkins' earliest stocks. Only 300 bottles are available from cask number 86p bottled at a hefty 58.2% ABV check out the website or reach out if you want help grabbing a bottle happy holidays everyone enjoy your whiskey responsibly and remember the two rules of the whiskey ring podcast drink what you like and drink it how you like it hey whiskey ringers I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast only code for the scotch malt whiskey society They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. For the holiday season, December, January, we've got even more bottles than usual available to try and available to buy. If you are a US-based listener, there are at least 12 casks just for this month's release, plus additional ones coming out. If you are a UK listener or an EU listener, there are over 30, a ridiculous number of bottles that you can try and get your hands on. Remember to use code WRP at checkout to get 25% off your annual membership. And when you get that special bottle, post a picture on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and tag us at Whiskey My Wedding Ring, Whiskey Ring Podcast, and hashtag Whiskey Ring to let us know you've got that great bottle in hand. Yeah. I uh, was fortunate to try the uh, the Midnight Silky Mm-hmm. And it was uh, it was really an experience. I mean, 
there were certain aspects of it that had what I would call a classic Irish whiskey, highly generalized term, but a classic Irish whiskey of those orchard fruits, bright, um, uh, sweet citrusy, um, a lot of apple in there. But at the same time, the smoke was undeniable. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. it was by no means overpowering. And as you're saying, this was the smokiest of the three. Uh, It didn't taste peaty to me. And so really separating the peat from the smoke uh, idea, uh, it, more than anything else, I came away feeling like it it had its own identity. It was a very clear identity for it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I'm curious to kind of go backward now and try the other two. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah it's, 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 it's really interesting what you said there, because I suppose what I set out to achieve is pretty much what you've said, which is really quite spooky. <laughs> um, but um, with, with Midnight Silky, so... The, the first two, the legendary silky and the dark silky, are blends, absolutely. So they're 70-30 so they're blends. So 70% grain whiskey, 30% single malt. In the, the legendary, which we won't taste now, but it, it's um, uh, the grain whiskey is half and half rechar casks, which give you some esters, and virgin oak, which gives you sort of real intense sweetness and, and um, oak and spice and, and colour. And then the single malts that are in there are... We use double distilled, um, double distilled single malt in sherry oak, triple distilled in uh, bourbon casks, and triple distilled peated in bourbon casks. So that makes up the, the sort of legendary silky. Dark silky starts to bridge styles between Ireland and the New World, brackets the US and uh, and your styles. So we have, um, so this one is now triple distilled peated, 15% of the blend, triple uh Double distilled, unpeated in sherry is uh, 15% of the band. And then the grain whiskey, 70%, is all virgin oak. So it's got this kind of salted caramel sweetness uh, overlaid with a kind of pipe tobacco aroma to it. And we do think, I think about smoke as a flavor rather than peat. I think peat is, as a term, and I've used it a lot already today, which I should apologize for, but, but peat as a word for me is owned by Scotland. You know, we don't even talk about it. We don't cut peat here. We 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 cut the same stuff, but we call it turf. Um, mm. And and for me, with silkies, it's about exploring the idea of smoke as a flavour. And and I look, I try to go look for balance. I was very lucky to have spent time at William Grant's doing work on innovation with David Stewart, the malt master. And David Stewart, you know, is the malt master for Balvenie. He was the malt master for Glenfiddich. His touch is so deft. And I wouldn't ever profess to have any kind of anything like his kind of skill, but we wanted to try and make these all have a kind of corner the core pieces that you should get are softness. Um, then in, in legendary, you should get soft salted sort of buttered popcorn, sort of fresh green apples, and just a merest hint of smoke at the end just catches you unawares, but it should, should in a pleasant way. So it should surprise you the dark silky, on the other hand, is now soft, salted caramel, baked apples, and and then it has this big pipe tobacco aroma over the top. And it reminds me of my granddad's pipe. That's why it tastes the way it does. I used to suck on his pipe as a little boy and wander around the house like I was the big man. And, and I can taste that sweet tobacco-y, apple-y taste. That's, that's why it is. And then in Midnight, we wanted to explore a slightly different version of it. So this is now a, a single malt, it, technically, 
but we don't refer to it as a single malt. So it still says that it's a blend. Um, and that's because I think if you use the word single malt, everyone assumes you made it in your distillery. And we wanted, we didn't want to mislead people on that. So we were very clear. It's like a blend of single malts. They're all from Great Northern. The You don't have the grain whiskey, which is all that round belly of sweetness to hang your flavors on. So you have in this one, what we do is we use um, Cabernet Sauvignon casks, um, which gives you a kind of toffee apple sweetness, so that red toffee apple, and then you crunch inside into a red apple kind of sweetness. That that that's it's got that. Then it has um, a sort of creamy coffee note to it, which is coming from Imperial Stout casks. So we have some of it Imperial Stout, in Imperial Stout casks. And that putting those two together gives you the structure really to allow the other things to shine. Then we have the triple distilled peated that's in a bourbon cask. Um, and then we have some Oloroso sherry, which gives you the sweetness, the spice, the Christmasiness. And then we have some Oloroso sherry that we finished gratuitously finished in virgin oak um but that adds a bit of bitterness to it which is quite nice and um but also gives us a bit of color because all of the silkies are natural color and non-chill filter um they're non-chill filter because i can't afford a chill filtration unit if i'm honest but but that's um <laughs> that's another story uh but the the natural color was for us it was important and we and we kind of have shied away from using sort of small batch language and things like that you know they're as good as we can make them every single time we are looking for consistency so i don't like the safety blanket of uh or the safety net sorry of um small batch which allows you to have a little bit of variability in it so so we try and avoid that um and and yeah i, I mean they've They've gone down really well. They're all double gold winners in San Francisco, which is always quite, kind of cool. You can you can dine out <laughs> dine out on that for a little while. Um, Dark Silky was the category champion Irish whiskey twenty twenty one, and I'm hoping that they all have this kind of they're true to Irish whiskey, but they show you a dimension of Irish whiskey that perhaps isn't on the market at the moment, and they pave the way for our whiskies, which are from our draw which will be more smoky not more peated but more smoky um and still have that same softness balance and sweetness but some of that we'll only know once we tip it out of those barrels it, it, it's the greatest mystery of whiskey is you've got to you can taste it along the way but until it's done yes you, you don't know what you're getting so i i wanted to pull out i was looking down as i was hearing you describe the the flavors that you wanted to get yeah. Out of these whiskeys. Um, I pull out my uh my tasting notes, which you know you'll see kind of here. Yeah. Or, um so comprehensive by the look of it. I I try. Um <laughs> I never want to look back at my tasting notes and be like, but what did I really think about this? So <laughs> um, you know, the the night so just going through and I, I want to take the time to read these because Ooh. I think it's not for my own edification, it's it's to show how much it lined up with what you're saying. So, mm. you know, the, the nose, I said it was striking with bright orchard fruit, um, especially peach and nectarines, but also okay. a not so, a not so subtle smoke, kind of like, um, like if you were in a really large orchard and a far off part of that orchard were on fire. Oh, okay. Um, and, uh, you know, apples freshly pressed, classic Irish, but, um, but stronger, so you know, firmer. Uh, and this part of this, I'm sure, comes from the uh, non-chill filtered. Yeah. But just 
more fattier, you know. Yeah. Uh, the palate goes into, you know, a rich Irish malt with a delicate smoke on the back palate and the upper palate, uh, evoking kind of the, the lightest style of peat. I, I thought it compared to more of a heathery smoke mm-hmm. that you might get, um, as opposed to, as you put it, uh, I think before we started recording, um, as opposed to the Isla style or, yeah. um, or maybe a Highland style in Scotland would be appropriate comparison. Uh, yeah. Dark chocolate, a bit of stout. Um, there's a perfumey element uh, leading to kind yeah. of a dry and astringent peppery mouthfeel that turns chewable, uh, remarkably rich at 92 proof, 48, uh, 46% rather. Um, incense smoke, a chocolate malted lacquer on the tongue, uh, but especially on the back half of the tongue. It really just kind of dried there like a shell. Yeah. And then in the finish, the chocolate becomes uh, cookie-like, like a like a home. I I described it as a homemade Oreo. In a, okay. Um, like a that really dry, sh- like a chocolate shortbread, maybe something yeah. like that. Um, just a bit of stout flavor. You know, there's no fermentation from the stout, and a long jowl filling filling finish. Uh, and uh, you know that review will now that it's out there. Um, it'll also be posted when when this interview goes live yeah um but it, it fit very much with what you were saying in terms of i think the only thing that was missing from my notes was um you mentioned the red fruit yeah but for me a nectarine in particular can go yeah no, i get, I get where you're coming from yep yeah so that stone fruit element there um, yeah, i'm always and, hesitant with chocolate i sometimes think it tastes like um it has there's a kind of cheap chocolate it's not mm-hmm. it's not like 60 percent cocoa chocolate it's it's cheap milk chocolate um, yeah I, I get that, that texture. Yeah, especially yeah. especially with peated and smoke it smoke it mm. peated and smoky um whiskeys there does end up usually being on the back palate for yes. me this chocolatey element yeah um, and that's no, that's kind of that really bitter chocolate if you will or baker's chocolate and did you try it with um ice david or not no, just just neat. Should I try it with ice then? Yeah, yeah. I'm a I'm a sucker for ice. So I think all of the whiskeys I make are generally a bit too sweet. Um, but I drink most things for pleasure. If I'm write, writing tasting notes, I have water and you know I'll sit properly savor it. But but for pleasure, I drink in a tall glass with lots of ice. So I'm looking for cold, not dilution. But for me, what's quite interesting with um with smoky whiskeys, when you add ice, they become really earthy. Um and in a really good way and that it kind of has a sort of different dimension to it and certainly um oh even over here sort of talking to the sort of whiskey community over here the cask strength versions of these with ice you get this profound change from smoke to earth and it, it's just like a, it's a bit of a mind stuff really but it's um it, it's really cool um so i i kind of whenever i talk to anyone i, I always say look you know, Give it a whirl with ice; you might be surprised. So, because um, most people say no, uh, a guy, a guy from Belfast was in the distillery with me the other day, and I said, "Look, I, I love it with ice." And he said, "No, no, you must never touch ice." And I went, but "Why not?" And he said, "Well, look what it did to the Titanic." <laughs> so, <laughs> he's not wrong. Okay, he's not wrong. <laughs> but uh, so I think I, I think it's just fun to explore the kind of ideas of it. You know how you can. Because it is about looking at different ideas of smoke and what do they taste like and and smoke as a flavor but as a flavor as a, a part of all those other flavors that you picked out not 
it's not just about smoky Irish whiskey. It's about all of those flavors for me. And maybe one day I'll get around to this, but I really do want to do kind of an around the world um, peat class mm-hmm. to, to have you understand not just the, the separation between peat and smoke and how those are two very different things that can coincide, but don't have yeah. to. Um, but just this idea that you're going to get a different smoke and different peat from li- literally anywhere you pull from, like different areas of Isla are getting different types of peat and they're yeah. on a tiny island with 3000 people, you know, uh, but you go to the north, you go to the southeast coast, you go to the southwest coast, it's different flavors. Yeah. Um, and this this too had a very uh, different flavor. So when uh, so for even though this was distilled, the silkies were distilled at Great Northern. Yeah. Uh, where did the peak come from? The turf so the come peak, from for that? So for Great Northern, they are by so their malt is coming from Scotland. So I think it's peated in Scotland. And in fact, we have a mix in our distillery of Scottish peated and Irish peated because well we need we need 900 tons a year so there just isn't a malt supplier on the island that can deliver that for us with peat so so we end up having to buy from from Scotland um what we've and, and Great Northern we no different so this is Scottish peat what we've identified and I think Great Northern have got it is that the the additional distillation of triple distilling you know, takes you from 55 parts per million to 20, 22 on the spirit, something like that. Um, what we've what we've noticed with our distillery is, is we we take we we operate a balanced system, so we're very like a Scottish distillery. So, like in Ireland, you tend to run the, the triple distilling distilleries that get to much lighter styles. They run extra faints runs to produce. The, so in their spirit still, they produce a higher, lighter spirit than we do. Um, so we we only get to a sort of in the receiver, we're at 78% alcohol or something, whereas, you know, other distilleries like Bushmills and things would be much higher than that. Um, but what we've noticed is in the intermediate still, so in the second still, we can start to cut away the, the, the sort of oilier TCP medicinal tastes. We don't t- we don't cut it all away at that stage, but we start to cut it away at that stage, and then in the spirit still, we we kind of our cut sits between sort of eighty two and seventy percent, and sometimes sixty seven. We might go as low as sixty seven percent, and that's the cut because once you get below that sixty seven, you start to get into the that Isla territory, um, mm-hmm. and so you know what we're finding is that the kind of ashy tobacco-y sort of pipe smoke all of those kind of aromas come off much earlier and that the oilier kind of heavier taste that you would associate with Isla come off later so we're deliberately cutting those out so so I think there's a function and, and it's probably there's probably a research project for someone who's got far too much time on their hands to do which is looking at how kind of peat terroir genuinely influences and and actually how much the kind of cuts you take influences. Because I think one of the challenges with all of these things is there's so many variables, you know, unless you've got exactly the right kind of, unless you're using the right feints and you're not, you're not mixing feints and all that kind of stuff, you end up in a very difficult, it's very difficult to isolate that it's Scottish peat or it's Irish peat or whatever versus, well, actually it's the cuts that you took, um, you know, because, you, you know, I've made, we've made double distilled, monstrously peated irish um using irish turf actually turf from 
you know, my garden. So, you know, we dug it ourselves, um, which is different in style again from what we're making in our drawer. But it's interesting because it's um, it's got this it's got, you know, purely sort of moss heather based turf in it rather than trees because there's no trees in the area really um but i think the cut points also have is a significant influence so it's a bit like there's also a debate going on about terroir as a piece you know which i think is undeniable whether it's the most significant piece is, is another question and you know once you start looking at heritage grains and things like that you know that you know some of the, the grains that are no longer grown for yield you know because they're too low actually probably had more you know maybe had more of an impact from a flavor perspective than than terroir at a field level you know i don't so i think that all of these things are interesting it's just how do you how do you do it and isolate it and actually is it that important you know is it mm-hmm. is that the be all and end all and i understand the debates that are going on around it but but i do wonder you know i think what it you know the impacts of those things are all undeniable it's just a matter of whether they're in the in the grand scheme of things, whether whether they are significant enough on their own to go to war over. And, and you know, there, are th- unsurprisingly, there are three uh, three elements of what you just said that are really worth you know, everything. Well, everything's worth listening to. But I, I meant three that are worth picking out okay. from from that. Um, and going in backwards, you know, one of them, the first one was or the last one. Um, I'm recording this in the morning for, for me, I'm still waking up. So that is why I'm a little tongue tied. Um, <laughs> no worries. So, uh, you know, the first, the last one being this idea that there are so many variables that go into terroir and particularly terroir and whiskey, because you're adding in that distillation and, uh, aging component yeah. that may not, that's certainly not there in, in wine, but still may not be there if it's an unaged wine or lightly aged wine. Yeah. So, you know, I think a great depiction of that was through uh, Rob Arnold's book on terroir and whiskey. Um, he and he'll be coming on in a few months. Uh, okay. We're working out the details, but, um, you know, he was writing this book as he was writing his as he was both working at a distillery in Texas, but also finishing up his Ph.D. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, throughout the the book, he really goes to four regions you know, America, uh, Scotland, Ireland, and um, blanking on the last one. I think there, there might have been two in America, actually, yeah. in the U.S. But uh, his one of the points that he came to, one of the conclusions he came to was simply that as much as we can argue about terroir and whiskey, and, you know, I am a big believer that there is terroir or something equivalent to it, call yeah. it a sense of place, if you will, in whiskey, uh, there are so many variables that it's it's nearly impossible to really identify down to a science what those things yeah. are um and uh, you know it, it's worth it's worth saying then it just comes down to to taste like like i said i i felt like i haven't had any other whiskeys from donegal i haven't had any other of the silkies any other um i've had a couple of other things that came from great northern in one form or another but yeah um i still felt like having had no context in this only single whiskey from uh, under the silky brand mm. that it was still a very unique character that was clear as a character on its own um which is rare it meant that it had enough characters to just be itself yeah um 
another part of it was uh, going back to this idea of Pete being associated with Ireland. And, uh, you know, for, for uh, the novice whiskey drinker and even for, for many advanced whiskey drinkers, uh, Pete is kind of exclusively seen as the Scottish element, maybe in Japan, yeah. maybe in India, but, you know, anything with a Scottish tint to it. Yeah. And except for, as you put, as you said, Connemara, uh, there are, you know, Pete just didn't happen in Irish whiskeys. And there are two elements that I want to tease out. That The first one is, as you said, there are no trees in your area or very few <laughs> trees in your area. And to me, that was reminded of both Isla and, um, and Orkney where, you know, you got wind so hard that you got high yeah. there, trees don't grow. So this idea of what biofuels were available to people and thus that's what became, you know, that's, the peated yeah. element, the smoky element. Um, and then also where, where Ireland lost the, peated element in their whiskeys so yeah. that's a big topic to handle but i'm going to throw it to you and oh, no it as you will <laughs> well i think it, you know what's interesting is um uh well i, I think it's interesting is that is we, we're kind of guilty of telling ourselves a, a, a narrative which is that that um the kind of cons the super consolidation and the kind of loss of island status as the as the number one whiskey country in the world is all kind of other people's faults and and, and i think you know there's um you know, some some there's other things that have happened to us. You know, so so when you look at um, post independence, trade wars, prohibition, all of those things, I think you know they're they're all there. They're all facts, and they're all you know the, the island didn't didn't respond well to those things. But I think un, un, I think it's undeniable that Irish whiskey in the 1920s, the 19, 1910s, 1920s, somewhere there. The flavors of those whiskies was heavier and richer in style than the styles we have today, and that's I think I don't think that's arguable. I think that's that's the reality, which is because it was pot still in the main, so the north was producing single malt, and you know, and the south, if you want to be sort of make some big sweeping statements, you know, the, the hot, top half of the country was producing single malts and generally peated. And the bottom half of the country was producing pot still in huge quantities. And pot still is not really a product product of a tax regime change, which is what most people say in the, you know, the documentation. It was actually there for a very, very long time before that, where it was obviously put in because people liked the taste of it. And so that, you know, goes right back to sort of pre-famine. So you can so all of that I think is is fine. I think what's then happened for me anyway is that sort of post-prohibition, we have the Second World War. And what happens at that point is you've got Irish whiskey, you've got Scotch whiskey, you know, being the drink, for me, the drink of the officer classes and Irish whiskey being the drink of the ratings. And um, and you have all of those American soldiers that came over here and served over here. As, you know, the GIs were all based in the UK as either as pilots or as soldiers that were going off to D-Day or whatever. And they they were exposed to Scotch whiskey in a much heavier way than they were exposed to Irish. And when they went back, they took that style with them. That's what they took. And and whether that was predominantly peated or not, you know, probably, but it was a style that was generally lighter because they were using column stills at a time when Ireland had refused them. And so you've got this style of whiskey that people went back after the war and said, this is, 
this is one the aspirational drink this is the drink of, of you know the, the the officers are drinking and and two and um is that it's a style that they all got accustomed to over a period of four or five years and then went home with what you then have with irish whiskey today is a really a product of a, a counterpoint to those brands like johnny walker shivers regal all of these things that were you know have become monsters you know and i, I, I take single malts out of it because that's I know it's only it's as old as me, but it, as a category, but it, it's a relatively new phenomenon. That's my one claim to youth, I guess. But um, you know, so the if you, if you, late sixties onwards is when single malts took off. So, um, so if you think about that blended category, you know, the Irish whiskey was in trouble. It consolidated even further, and and it started to produce stars of whiskey that competed with scotches because they were different. And this idea of triple distilled, twice as smooth you know sweet smooth easy all of that i think is an, an evolution to, as a response to where scotch was post second world war um now whether that, there's no science to that that's my my ample gut feel um so you know what you what you have then is you know the the style of irish whiskey we all drink today which saved the industry frankly is a style that is ultimately from the 60s onwards, from the sort of late 50s onwards, that when the super consolidation happened, because it was all about how do we keep this industry alive? And the families that owned Powers and Jameson uh, and what have you got together to save the industry, you know, and, and kind of write themselves out of history almost, you know, so, but they did it for the good of the industry. But what it, you then got is this style that becomes dominant, which is, lighter and easier and that's become what people have accepted and it's it's in the eu there's a definite you know the definition of traditionality is about what's being used and has been used for the last 40 years so is irish whiskey in its current guise traditional and the answer to that is absolutely yes is it historically correct in terms of historical accuracy the answer is undoubtedly no um when the files were written, the technical files were written a few years ago to say, you know, was, you know, was what, what's the style of Irish whiskey that, that, you know, that we make, it's been written from that context. Thank God for Connemara, because if Connemara hadn't existed, it would have been written as it's never petered, which would never have been right. But it, you know, Connemara existed, so it had to have, had to be accommodated. So that's fine. That's good. But you, you've got this work that's going on now, which is, saying look the definition is correct for kind of modern tradition and we need to accommodate all of these things that are historically traditional that that guys like us you know and um david armstrong at radaman uh you know the distilleries bowen who've got these massive projects on on different mash bills all want to go back to come forward so you know how do we do that and protect the integrity of the, of the category. And it's really important that we protect the integrity of the category because if it's a free-for-all, you lose everything. Everybody, you know, you it's if you if you stand for everything, you stand for nothing. So we've got to stand for certain things and we need to get that right now um, that gets us to a position where the definition is kind of widely accepted, understood, and, and brings Irish whiskey to a heartland that involve that includes where it is currently, but is is also broader and richer because it brings in all of those historical flavors as well. 
Sorry, I got on my soapbox and I don't know if I've answered your question. No, I I, I believe you have. Uh, I, in thinking back, I, no, I believe you have. I think uh, the one more to dig a little bit deeper into is the, that idea of, <clears throat> pardon me, that idea of recreating that style. And as you put it, if Connemara hadn't existed, I have a feeling you're, you're absolutely right. If it didn't exist at the time of writing the regulations, Pete would not have been included as a recognizable or allowable uh, facet. So uh, early on, you mentioned that, you know, the last distillery that had been in Donegal was 1841. Yeah. So in addition to kind of the wider island wide uh, consolidation over from really from pre-famine yeah. to the sixties, the 1960s, of consolidation distilleries going out of business and just losing it that character that regional character um over that hundred and let's say century and a half just for ease yeah. that century and a half period these other regions of ireland again island-wide not political but geographical yeah. had uh varying degrees of you know oh we can find this old bottle and taste it and we can kind of get a character of it um and even to you know post-World War II, but pre-consolidation um, yeah. Middleton, you can find the powers from that era, Jameson from that era. Um, it's difficult, but you can find it. Yes. Now, when you have a distillery where the last one was from 1841, yeah. <laughs> um, maybe not so much. So uh, in, in doing that and trying to recreate and revive this Donegal, very regional, local style, yeah. Um, what kind of benchmarks did you have to go off of to so create that? That's a, it's a brilliant question, uh, um, and the answer is a, is a, is a couple of is, a, is approached in a couple of ways. So one is big sweeping assumption, and and a certain amount of how hard can it be. Um, so you know, I have a piece of it is been in the industry long enough to absor absorb bits of information along the way that say that it's inconceivable to me that whiskeys in this area weren't peated and if you if you get you know and so so therefore we should only do peated and and that's also driven by a belief that in scotch there's a concept of of regionality which was largely imposed by the classic malts um and can be done because you had one owner who had multiple distilleries across the island that that needed a way to compete with glenfiddich glenlivet mccallan and, and didn't have a singular brand that could do it. So it, it played into discovery, exploring uh, curiosity space and single malt in a, in a category kind of way, which is genius in terms of its idea, but it also brought a language to the industry, which is quite clever, quite helpful. And everybody has kind of rode in behind ultimately, whether they, whether it's because the consumers adopted it first or the trade did, I'm not sure, but, but, but it's there. The interesting thing for me in Ireland is that you know there's a there's a piece where the taxman legislates that on the size on the number of stills you have, and that's that's the that's a defining moment in Scotland. They legislated against the um, the size of your stills, so you end up with lots of stills um, and 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 more flavour variation because they were smaller and more different shapes. And in Ireland, you end up with bigger stills with less flavour variation. The 
so so we kind of know those things so i've then said i believe this is what an, an irish whiskey from donegal would be peated it would be strongly peated and it will be challenging and it won't be liked by everyone but i love soft whiskies and i'm from donegal so it's going to be soft and i think it would be rich and sweet and elegant with smoke as a flavor and so I know enough about how whiskey's made to develop the kind of cask recipe that delivers the sweet and rich. And I know enough about distilling to be able to create a smoky but not oily. And I know enough about the way I want it to taste. So that's what I want. And I'm going to make something I like. The second bit that kind of is a bit different, which is more iterative. And it's the other way that we've almost evidence hunted to support our philosophy our, our kind of concept of what the whiskies look like and we're very lucky that there are guys in the industry who are just so much more disciplined and rigorous than i am about going into the history of it and they dig around you know finn o'connor um who wrote the book a glass apart is doing his phd at the moment you know he he's willing to go back into texts from the 1820s and 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 find stuff that that provide evidence for his you know his thesis and what have you and he's also got a generosity of spirit that means when he finds something out about Donegal he sends it to me um and and so he he the last Donegal mash bill that we've he sent through to me the other day and we're looking to make it actually not for ourselves but for someone else um you know he's he sent in a document from 1830 an excerpt from a book where, and it was about the economies of Ireland and this guy talks about, and he, and he talks about all the things that I kind of in my head conceptually believed, which was, you know, Donegal had this astringent smoky taste. It had this, you know, the, the whiskies were um, produced and then matured in these sherry casks to give them a certain sweetness. All of these things, you know, things that we believed but didn't have evidence for, he's helped provide that. And then on top of that, there's other sources that we've got, which are, um, you know, looking at whiskey books, I collect old books, I collect old books on distilling. So you can, if there's a bit of it that I can do it myself, but I'm not as disciplined as I said of those guys. And then on top of that, I've met most of the illicit distillers of the area who tell me all the stories, what they used to do. We've been very lucky that some of them have, have allowed us to sit down and record them. We're not allowed to use the stuff until they die. But, um, but I figure there's a generation of these guys that if we don't record this stuff now, it'll be lost forever. And what we've done is we've got sort of geolocations for where the still sites were, you know, and all of these kind of ideas that would allow us in time, we'll be able to sort of say, not only do we think Donegal had this richest distilling heritage, but we have all of this anecdotal stuff that says that this is how these guys did it. This is what they remember from their fathers and their grandfathers. Um, so, so it's a, it's a kind of, a, 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 I guess, a moment of inspiration and a kind of concept backed up by kind of an iterative refining of that idea, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And it's, uh, I can't, I mean, I, I thought about this when, when designing the question, I can't really think of another way to do it. I mean, that's, it, that's the thing is you, those two ways are really the only way to do it. You, you don't have, as I said, it's just too far back. Yeah, I think you can, I mean, one thing that was quite handy was that the Irish revenue authorities did require you to write down your mash bills. So mash bills are documented. It's not like, mm. 
it's not like they're they're not known. So our pot still recipe um, that we use here is fifty percent uh, peated single malt, thirty percent uh, raw barley from Donegal, and twenty percent malted peated oats. And that that was an intuitive position I took, but I subsequently found out it's the nineteen twenties recipe of powers. I think. Now, not peated, because that's the Donegal twist we've put on it, but it's a recipe from powers from that era. Um, so it's historically valid. The smoking, you know, the peating or the turfing element of it is is our twist, the Donegal twist on it. Um, so, you know, I think there's a bit about it. And there are, and there are distilleries like Blackwater who have gone into the history of this properly, you know, much more than I have. And they've, they, they are bringing back mash bills in fact, Peter's just launched his dirt grain whiskey uh, this week, and I, I bought a box, so I, I shall pop down and collect it from him. Um, exploring mash bills that are documented in history that have been let and, and not been made since, you know, whenever. Um, and and he's making those, and his distilleries of a size where he can do that. He's got that flexibility, which is wonderful. You know, I think, you know, our, I, I would argue our distillery is probably too small but it's also too big you know at the same time so it's too big to be kind of super flexible and um and just go in and have a play and and i don't mean that in a dismissive way but be able to have that kind of luxury of being able to play with recipes um but it is also uh it's scalable but it's probably not big enough you really you know you really do want to have a million liter distillery really and we're, we're not there yet um but so i think there are so the, the you know if you look at Boan, they've gone back and they've picked up those recipes and they're making it. Peter's picked up those recipes and making it, and I've uh, uh, and so you know they're they're coming at it from a, a sort of more intellectualized position, I guess. If that's no, if that's fair, yeah, I, absolutely, I totally get what you mean. And um, there are parallels to a couple of, of projects here in the U.S. that I've thought about. Um, the Rose and Rye project is the biggest one that I can think about. Uh, Laura Patrizio, who's I think also working on her PhD, and she's right. really digging into the history of Pennsylvania rye and mm -hmm. going through old newspaper records, old books. Uh, and it, it's to me, it's it's something I wish that I could spend my life just digging into that stuff. I come from a um, at one point thought I was going to be a professor studying right. medieval history uh, of of wow. all things oak usage. Okay, uh, and in you know the late Middle Ages in in East Anglia, so never thought the oak would have a connection, but there we go. Yeah, uh, but to me, because of that, it's fascinating to to read people like Laura, like um, like Fiona O'Connor, as you, as yeah. you wrote, uh, to read his book and and Rob Arnold as well, and to see the the different ways that they're approaching this. Um, so. I, just as a time check, I know we are at the t at the top of the hour and a half yeah. or so. Um, do you have a couple more minutes that I of could? Of course, man. No worries. Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. it's good to Sunday. Um, with it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, that'll be good for my bosses to hear too, because when I said I was distilling, I was oh, Jesus Christ distilling in the morning, um, <laughs> talking in the morning. Uh, they'll be like, "Okay, it wasn't on a work day. That's fine." So. <laughs> no no that's good oh, yeah. there's football as well we catch that later <laughs> oh very true very true well the u.s is out but i mean i wasn't watching it them anyway uh so they did they did so um 
the uh, I just wanted to run a couple of technical yeah. questions by you, which are uh, so you've got your own distillate now. Yes. Um, what is your aging and your maturation space look like? So we have uh, warehousing on site. We have a mixture of um, barrels laid down on their uh, on their belly, and we also have palletized. So we have both going on um, on the site. The distillery is 150 meters from the sea, so so it is a maritime climate. So that's really important to us. Um, we do we in that consistency way that um, I talked about earlier. We we actually use a Solera vat at the beginning of the process rather than at the end. So when we, so we make, um, so our, our mash tun is a two ton mash. It was, it's not a mash tun, we just have a cooker, but but we have a two ton mash, 10,000 liter fermenters, a 10,000 liter wash still with an external heater that is um, uh, actually it's modeled on, in terms of the heat exchangers and stuff and modeled on Balconis. The guys were super supportive when um, we were picking for scythes and no one because we're grains in you can't really use you know you can't use steam coils or radiators inside the still you know so we wanted external heating um mm -hmm. they had done it to ostensibly the same way so so for sites put us onto them and they were really good about helping us about making sure that we had all the right extra valves that you need to protect the place and um so we have that and we have two kind of conventional in, an intermediate and a spirit still so a five thousand liter intermediate and, and uh three and a half thousand liter spirit still we get about a thousand liters bulk liters per batch um and that's at 78 percent. that gets pumped up to the barrel store goes into a wooden solera six thousand liter wooden solera we have two sitting side by side one for pot still one for single malt um they they have an offtake 25% of the way up. So so they're never emptied. Um so if, like at the moment we're doing a campaign for single malt. So if you bought, if you asked me for um like a pot still sample, it'll have a bit mm -hmm. of color because it's sitting in a wooden, a wooden vat. So the new make, you know, if you don't it, when we're making it all the time, it's fine. But when we switch from campaigning pot still to, to single malt, you end up with, with it sitting in tank in, in a wooden vat for a while. And the idea behind that is that we get we can iron out the differences between the two batch, you know, like so we can take six batches at a time, then mix together. So we get this kind of consistency going through the operation. And then hopefully, you know, in a hundred years time, some of the original spirit is still in that, in those wooden vats. So we have a Solera there and we have a mix then of, um, gosh, it's, it's about 60% um, American first fill bourbons at the moment. Um, I think that that number will come down over time. We use more refill casks and stuff over time, but at the moment you want as much, it would impact on that early spirit as you can get. Um, we have 35% of the mix is um, is Oloroso Sherry. I'm a, not a big fan of PX's, fully matured PX casks and things like that. I, do, I love Oloroso. So we have 35% Oloroso Sherry, and then we have 5% of the casks are, we've got some Cabernet Sauvignon, we've got some Pomeroles, we've got some Moscatels and Port and various other things just to give us a bit of a library when we come to start doing our releases that we've we've got a bit of flexibility because what we intend to do is to create rather than batches in year three or four and five that are all kind of slightly different mixes that are kind of exploring different ideas it won't surprise you that conceptually i kind of know what i think it tastes like and mm -hmm. in year three i don't think it'll be ready but we're going to do a, we'll do a single malt release in year three tiny but 
but hopefully, you know, in that signature recipe of casks that will then, yeah, four will do a pot still release again, signature pot still style, and then year five come back to the single malt, and it will be the same recipe, but two years older. So you should, and hopefully, we can take you on the journey with us to to when we think that style is at its signature level, whether that's eight, 10, 12 years, you know, who knows? We'll 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 work that out as we get there. I guess the pot still is likely to be younger, but hard to say. Well you so um oh man there was some there was one thing I wanted to pick up on. Uh oh you said earlier that you you didn't like things too sweet. So the um exclusion of PX is not too surprising given that <laughs> um the uh what was it? the Oh, I'm going to cut some dead time out because I'm looking for the note that I wrote on this. Okay. Oh, okay. This is what it was. So uh, you reminded me of something you said on the uh, Irish whiskey review. And this was right when you had, this was two years ago. It was right when you had, oh, okay. um, you know, started distilling on your own stills and your own equipment. And uh, you said that as a general rule, Irish whiskey doesn't always take age as well as Scotch whiskey does. Yeah. And as you were saying, uh, you know, you wanted to do these testing tester releases, if you will, at three, four, five years, yeah. um, you know, maybe it goes eight, 10, 12, but it seemed, as you said, conceptually, it seems like they'll probably be ready yeah. at the younger side of that, like maybe six years or so, as opposed to the 10 or 12. Yeah. I think that's right. I think with, with, because we start with an inherently more refined spirit, you know, the, that triple distillation, and, and I'm not saying that as a, a judgment on the other ones, I'm just saying, you know, a double distilled, you've got, you, you've got a, a more, a richer profile probably because it's, it, it's got more going on, but it's also, it's less, it's less refined. So it, it takes a, you know, it, so to knock the edges off, it, it takes a bit of time. Whereas, with with Irish, you start with such a good place because it's got that sort of in, innate elegance to it straight off the bat. Um, and with us having a softness kind of distilled into it, I think it would, you know, it starts there. You know, start you're starting from a really good place. So it isn't like a, a, a local set of directions, which is, you know, I wouldn't start from here because I would start from here. I think it's a much better place to start from. Um, the thing that is probably more interesting as well is I think there's a, um because of the, the the sort of that innate sort of smooth softness sort of elegance of the of a, of an Irish whiskey to start with because it's distilled to that higher level refined to a higher level <coughs> sorry excuse me I think that somewhere like Great Northern particularly their whiskies their malts particularly have this kind of aromatic flavor to them I think you talked about it in your tasting notes you talked about um slightly perfumey almost gin like they have a sort of ginny yeah. character yeah. that's that kind of ar aromatic texture that comes through to them and i think that's really quite interesting and it's quite it's not it's quite playful without being off-putting um if it's done in the right way so i think that allows you to do different things to, to that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do with scotch and it would be my take on it it's it's something that once once you've said it in that interview, I look back on the Irish whiskey that I had in, in the house. And then, um, cause I've got a, uh, too many bottles, but, uh, the, <laughs> I, 
of just all whiskeys. But uh, yeah. I look back and I was like, yeah, some of you know the ones that I like the most are usually closer to the you know they're they're in the single digits. Let's say yes, as opposed mm-hmm. to the doubles. Um, rarely you'll get one. I mean, I, I happened two nights ago uh, as a recording. I tried a teeling. Um, it was a single barrel, only available there. Yeah, that a friend gave me a taste of. Um, that blew my mind. Um, just insane. But it was twenty plus years old. It was yeah. finished in a certain, I think, Port in Oloroso. Uh, it was mind blowing. But it, but it's it's the exception, not the yeah. rule. You know. I think also. Um, so I don't know whether that would have been a coolie or a Bushmills, but you know, essentially those whiskies. What's What's really interesting for me is is like aged coolie because coolie gets quite a bad rap unfortunately you know and it's not fair um but the aged coolies sort of when they've been looked after well and they've been casked well can uh, you know can be exceptional and i think teelings do it well i think the guys at dunville's also they they do it with old bushmills and old um now, to be fair, they do a lot of PX costs, so I'm sure that's just to wind me up. But they um <laughs> they have a you know, they there's the, the guys at Teeling have, you know, their cask management is exceptional and they they bring out some of those exceptional things. And I think there because there are so few Irish whiskies of that age that are actually out there, um, <laughs> you know, the ones that tend to make it out tend to be exceptional. And that and that does kind of when you think of the majority of Irish whiskey is kind of light, sweet, smooth, easy. And then you sort of juxtapose, juxtapose it with that. Then you kind of go, oh my God, you know, wasn't prepared for that. Uh, and I think that that'll be interesting to see now as we move now into the next, you know, we're moving out of that kind of wood phase. Everyone's doing it. It's all about the casks we're, because we're all trying to trick up other people's liquids, really. Um, you know, and unless you're kind of, got an identity of your own already defined, then you're going to move now progressively into a much more spirit-led environment um, where the sort of intrinsic sort of people are going to want to showcase their intrinsic taste. And I think that would be really fascinating to see how that develops and and how the whiskies that are being made today are, you know, how are they going to be good? And, and you know what would be really interesting is at the moment we're still in that era of the kind of celebrity the celebrity distiller and and you know the distillers are kind of heroes at the moment i've always wondered when you get sort of further down the track does the does the balance shift towards the blender rather than the distiller um because the guys who you know they're not necessarily the same beast which i think is quite an interesting for piece. sure yeah. for sure and you know in the us we we really harp on that master distiller head distiller type thing um, I really want to put more of an emphasis on the blending aspect because, yeah. you know, they're, they're, as you said, distillation is one part of it. Blending is a whole other art. If you can do both, great, but there are very few people who can do both. Uh, and on the UK side and Ireland, um, there's been, there's more of a focus on the master blender. Yes. I'd yeah. say, you know, of this, if you're, especially when you go towards the, who's the face of the brand, the celebrity of the brand. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, I, I'm not sure which one I would lean to in terms of which is better if there is a better, but, um, I don't know. I, I just, I think ultimately I think blending is, is a tougher skill just because 
you just don't have the same control. You're working with something that someone else created, even if it's someone on your own team or hell, even if it's something you created, you know, however many years ago, but you can control the head cuts, this, uh, where you distill the temperatures, the mash bill. Once you get to blending, you got what you've got and you have to make that profile you want from what you've got. Yeah, and it's a bit like, I wonder whether, and maybe this is a, a poor analogy, but um, like a virtuoso violinist, you know, a good, good distiller is a good, you know, it's like a virtuoso something like violinist or oboe player or whatever, but the mm -hmm. conductor plays the orchestra. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't, yeah, the I think conductor, he or she does not play, well, they do play an instrument and maybe two, three, four of them, but, but actually they play everything that's in front of them rather than that. That requires a different skill set, and 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 that's you know I suppose at the moment we're in such a an unusual place for an industry you know that is so desperately young really and finding its feet. So we don't have and you know we talked about regionality in in Scotch. You know we don't have a company that's going to impose that rule. So so we're going to have a very organic, probably chaotic evolution to some form of regionality that may may have something to do with history may not may have something to do with the tourism trails that are here i don't know you know i just think it'll be fascinating to see you know it, and unfortunately well, it'll be 35 years probably before it all kind of really grounds out um hopefully i'm still here maybe looking a bit more like santa claus at that stage but you know we'll see i mean the does the iwa the irish whiskey association cover um is it geographically based or politically based? Like in terms of no, it's a whole it island body. Whole island. It is whole yeah. island. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I took over as chair last week. So um yes, yeah, so we've got an I interesting had, couple yeah. of years because yeah, sorry, I had, I had that in a note and I completely forgot. So no, yeah. no, no, it's good. Don't worry. It's um yeah, it's a it's it represents probably 92% of the industry, I think. Um and and it protects the whole of the industry because it's it's the only body that's actually out there trying to enforce the sort of standards internationally and locally in terms of you know what what's within scope and what's not and um and for me the the the, the interest there's, there's a kind of debate you know with some that would be that it's you know it's run by the big guys and you know undoubtedly the big guys pay the bills you know because that's that's a reality but the organization is is fundamentally one one member one vote and the ability to influence the debates um that then get you know put into the government whether it's you know the irish government or the uk government you know to 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 shape the next gi the next tax regimes the next whatever all of those things it's you know it's important that we are as a as a as a industry as united as we possibly can be so we're not squabbling over the full the, the ball in a school playground but we're actually you know trying to make sure that we're playing a good game of, of soccer you know or whatever it is we're playing but it's let, let's um you know we have a it has a unique voice in that because it, it does represent both both kind of sides of the island and it is also you know it's important because of that sort of unique nature of the GI and the sort of all island nature of the economy that Irish whiskey has, that 
we do stay connected, joined up, and and help to shape the, the industry for the for the very long term. Because we're not looking. I mean, for me, it's not about shaping it for now. It's about shaping it for fifty years hence, and and making sure that that you know, I I I put a cartoon up the other day for the guys, and you know, it was a picture of a goose laying golden eggs, and you know, she's not laying the eggs yet. She's about to, and the danger is that you know we could find ourselves sitting around with you know nice goose down duvets and eating foie gras and saying you know what happened to that goose shouldn't it be laying eggs now so you know, i think there's an industry and then that's that has an integrity about it and that we need to make sure that that's protected for the generations to come i think that leads perfectly to that last question i promised you which was you know where do you envision Schlieve legs uh, league's place in the irish whiskey renaissance and its future to be honest, it'd just be nice to be in business, but <laughs> <laughs> the um, for me, so, so Sleeve League is a generational thing for me. It, absolutely, I've got investors that I have to give an exit to at some point, but it is about building a business that creates it's an international spirits business. The distillery is just one element of it, and if we do this well, we'll create opportunity that will mean that young people get the opportunity to stay in Donegal and work and do, you know, work for a great business, do really interesting things across the world. Um, and that, that to me is the the fundamental driver of this. And, I, and if we pull this off and more and I get it right, then, then um, that would be enough. I think beyond that, it, um, for me, it's really important that we showcase the Geltacht in a very positive context. You know, the Irish language is under pressure all the time. And we use the spelling, the Irish spellings very deliberately. Um, I mean, whiskey, whiskey men, particularly not whiskey users in general, but whiskey men uh, love the low key respect about that you get from being able to say Lefroy correctly, or to know that Ockentoshan means the well in the corner of the field or whatever it is, you know, and or that Sleeve League is the mountain of flagstones. And I think um sort of helping to preserve the language in a modern context and, and use it in a way that people find engaging i think is a really um is a really positive thing so i think that you know and that's what we are doing even today i think is already showing that we we've created an international business in a structurally disadvantaged area where when we came back people said it'll never work don't waste your time and you know, now there's a there's a beautiful distillery there, employs eight people. We have a bottling line and an administration piece in another building that employs another 17 people. We buy everything we can locally and we can build a little ecosystem that that's there for the long, long term and, and perhaps show a slightly different way of doing business in the Donegal Gelta that that is more internationally focused and less locally focused in terms of the way it looks at the world. Um, and if that's good for the industry, then we'll take it. I think that's a perfect capstone. So James, thank you so much for taking the time uh, and so much time today to talk about your own distillery, about uh, Irish history, Irish distilling history. We covered a lot of topics this one. Um, I'm thrilled to see not only what uh, is being produced now with the Silky, but uh, to follow you along your journey and see what what it's like in uh, now two years from now when maybe that three year comes out uh, to taste that heavily peated as you put it 
yeah Irish whiskey uh and to to just follow along uh and again just thank you um there'll be uh, there'll be links in uh to show notes in the show notes of this episode to uh ways you can follow both the distillery on social media its website how you can keep up with updates um review of the midnight silk you will be on there as well uh you've already heard it in this episode but you'll see it you get some more of the history behind it as well written out and i think that's it uh james hang out with me for a sec after we finish recording um this has been another episode of the whispering podcast i'll see you guys next week